Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Ah, MLK Week. Always the one time you got to be on top of things on the NBA season. It's the one Monday you can count on every year where you got to get your lineup set first thing in the morning here out in the Pacific Coast. Other parts of the world, I suppose it's either a little bit easier or a little bit harder, but uh, we are through that. Hopefully, everybody was able to make the decisions they needed to make yesterday, and we rumble along into the week. Welcome to the show, everyone. This is Fantasy NBA Today. I am Dan Bespris, <laughs> as he farts all over himself. A sports ethos presentation. Uh, so yesterday was, it was fun. It was, uh, we had a few really good basketball games mixed in there. Uh, interestingly, Lakers-Rockets turned out to be kind of a fun ball game. Lakers, I don't know how they did it, but they covered in a game that there were a few stretches in there where it felt like they might actually lose that one. Um, you know, the matchups were a little bit goofy. Um, the games that you thought might have been the great ones turned out to be a little bit clunky. Some of the ones that you thought, oh, maybe this one could have some legs. They turned out to be good, like Utah-Minnesota. That was a fun one. Raptors-Knicks, that one had a had good written on it. And a lot of times you can look at the Vegas line on a game, and if it's under, like, three points, you figure, all right, well, this one's got at least a decent shot to be a good ball game. But uh, that wasn't always the case. Miami didn't really show up. Uh, Wizards kind of hung in there for a little bit, but then the Warriors trounced them late. And uh, most of the other ones were over relatively early. And then we had some big performances in the nightcap. My only complaint on the MLK Day slate was the needlessly long layoff between the Memphis Phoenix blowout, which was over by middle of the third quarter, and Lakers Rockets, which started a solid two hours after the previous game ended. It was almost like there was originally a game scheduled in there and then it had to get canceled for some reason. But that wasn't the case. That We're not in COVID cancellation season right now. Which, by the way, good news. Uh, because COVID is sweeping through and we're, the league's kind of hanging in there so far. So that's great news on that front. The fact that we haven't really had to bring it up at all is wonderful news. Uh, so that was the MLK Day gripe. Uh, my other gripe is that you know, five, six years ago when I didn't have a, a kid to take care of on MLK Day morning, I could actually just lounge out and watch all these ball games. But I got a pretty good chunk of them uh, by the, by like the middle of the big wave, the games that started around noon Pacific time. By the middle of those games, I was pretty well tuned in. The one I missed was, I don't think I saw a second of Boston Charlotte, but we're still going to break that ball game down, even if I didn't get to watch it live. I just like I enjoy watching these games live. I think we can pull more from them when you watch them live. And I think that all of you should take a little bit of that. And that's how we're going to actually open today's show is I don't want to do a whole like long segment on it, um, but a quick one just to note there really is value in watching the ball games both from a fantasy standpoint and just from a, like, understanding basketball standpoint. But, you know, Boston-Charlotte, we can start with that one, is actually a really good indicator of a game where, like, you can you can read a box score, which is what we're going to do with that ball game. but I would feel much more confident 
if I had seen this entire ballgame all the way through. Now, the obvious stuff is the obvious stuff, and pretty much everything on Charlotte right now is the obvious stuff, which is basically the starting five are currently all startable. Cool. At some point, Gordon Hayward comes back, and then maybe that changes because he's been bad, and then Jalen McDaniels is going to lose a lot of what he's been kind of allowed to do here with all of the wings dealing with some stuff. And then on the Boston side, that's the other thing. Okay, uh, you can look at box scores, and you might get frustrated by some stuff. I know Robert Williams playing 27 minutes. That's a game where, boy, 27 minutes, you figured he's got to be pushing double-digit rebounds, and he was close. He had nine of them, but you wanted more than one defensive stat in 27 minutes. But you know what? It didn't happen. And it'd be nice to look at that ball game and say, okay, well, why didn't this happen? Was it just fluky? Because 27 minutes with him, you know it's always going to level off. Al Horford, 31 minutes. His numbers were actually weren't all that far off from kind of the projected. His rebounds were a little lower. And some of that was because Tatum had nine boards and Grant Williams had nine boards and Charlotte was firing away. They were going three-point happy in this ballgame a little bit. They made 13 of them, but they missed quite a few. And so then you're like, all right, okay, long rebounds. Small forwards, power forwards, maybe they got a better angle at this stuff. So little things like that that you can take in that you really, like, you can deep dive the box score, you can try to figure it out, but seeing it in action, oh, that rebound clanged over the free throw line kind of thing. All right, my big guy didn't really have a chance at it. That would be a good thing to know. But overall, we mostly, in season long, we grade things out on the long curve, which is, for a guy like Robert Williams, if he's playing this quantity of minutes, he's easy top 50 probably higher and Al Horford in over 30 minutes of ball game there's really no concern for me there because uh, he's been good he's coming off a really nice ball game his last time out and he's just he's big Al you know they love what he does and he's a guy that pretty consistently has one of the best plus minus markers on that team as well Jalen Brown was out uh, I think he's expected to miss another ball game or two I can't remember if they said like just under a week or if they're going to check things out around then uh, but Derek White, who left the previous ballgame, actually played in this one. If he had sat this thing out, you would have been able to go real heavy on Malcolm Brogdon. I still think Brogdon is startable with Brown out because they're going to need that additional scoring sock. They happen to get some of it from White in this ballgame, but that's not something that they count on Boston regularly. So good news for the guards, basically. Smart, White, and Brogdon. That Brown's usage tends to go... Some of it to Tatum, but his is already so damn high that it almost can't go much higher than it was. And then uh, the other guards pick up the slack there. So opportunity to use all three of those guys. Not that you weren't starting Marcus Smart anyway, but just a little footnote there. Milwaukee, still without Giannis, but they got the win over Indiana without Tyrese Halliburton. One team was able to kind of pick up the pieces a little better than the other. Drew Holiday looked more like Drew Holiday here, 35-11. and 11. Uh, Grayson Allen, not a bad stream with Middleton and Giannis out most of the Giannis stuff goes to Bobby Portis but Allen does seem to kind of be the next guy in the okay besides Holiday you can wipe him off the board because we know he's going to do more stuff but among the more fringy players who gets the bigger bump between like a Grayson Allen or a George Hill or a Pat Connaughton or a Javon Carter who basically didn't get to do anything the safe one there is Grayson Allen but it's also worth pointing out, no Joe Ingles in this one. This was the second half of a Bucks back-to-back. -back. He tends to take a little bit away 
from Allen, from Connaughton, from Portis, uh, from even Jordan Wara, uh, which makes any of those guys in a non-Giannis, non-Middleton situation a little bit more complicated. Good news out of Bucks country is that Middleton was once again assigned to the Bucks G League team, the Herd, for their Tuesday, I believe it's a practice today. That means he's getting real close. They're getting him extra practices in. They're trying to basically get him conditioned. They want to get the conditioning back up because he's missed a bunch of time and the season's been a wreck. So they're trying to kind of ease him in a little bit, which is a little bit what we talked about on a show last week where I was like, look, I actually don't mind sending good players to go practice with the G League. Or even, hell, you could send them to go play with the G League because it's so important to get their body attuned to a full basketball length performance or even part of one without the rigors, the intensity, the pressure of an NBA game. The, the, the humans are bigger, are stronger at that level than what you're going to get out of even your teammates in practice, but certainly what you get out of a practice in the G League. You got to just slowly work up to it. If you practice a couple of times with your team and they say, oh, it's full contact. Okay, that's true, but like getting trucked by LeBron in a ball game is very different than whatever contact they're getting in a quote-unquote full contact practice. So I actually like this for Middleton. Take it a little bit slow here. It sounds like he's basically there. I think we probably see him before this week is done. I don't know what to expect out of Giannis. His stuff has been a little bit nebulous lately. Uh, But I can't imagine it's going to be all that long, so we'll just sort of roll with it. On the Indiana side, T.J. McConnell exploded. Four three-pointers. I believe this is a career high in scoring for him. Five boards, nine assists, three steals. Don't expect more three-pointers from McConnell. He might go the next three games without hitting a single one of them. But you know what? You got four of them here, and damn it, it counts towards whatever you were doing, whether it's head-to-head or roto. It's in that bucket now. He's an easy call. Andrew Nemhard is the harder call between them, but I'm still pro Nemhard. And I know his two games without Halliburton have not been particularly good. Or is that three now? Uh, seven points, nine assists, a couple of steals. Again, the story with him is if he even hits 40% of his shots, heaven forbid he gets up to like 45% of his shots, then he's putting up a pretty good set of ball games. Because I think he hit like 18% in his first game without Halliburton, and this one he went 3 for 9. He's out there, and he's the starting unit point guard. And on top of everything else, he's a starting unit point guard that's not a bad foul shooter and can hit three-pointers and gets you some steals. I still think there's a lot to like there. I would hold them hard if you can. I understand if like there are other players calling your names. There's a lot going on every day right now, but... I don't know. To me, there's still a bit of upside built in with him. And as soon as he has a confidence builder game, well, then you can really kind of ride it. Benedict Matherin in the starting unit had previously been probably startable because he was getting so many shots. But now with McConnell taking a ton and Miles Turner coming back, that does muddy the waters a little bit on the Matherin front. He's someone that in, you know, what he got eight shots up and six free throws in this ballgame. And that. That's not nearly enough. I know he had eight rebounds too, which is which is good because typically all he does is score. He needs to be going heavy on the volume if he needs if he deserves to get in your fantasy lineup. Certainly on the roto side, head to head, like I guess if you're targeting points, that's kind of a little bit of a different story. 
Um, I would hold on him in this non-Halliburton situation, but I don't think that's a lock either. Warriors over the Wizards. Wizards and Warriors. I always love to do a little regular Nintendo reference when we get to these this twice-a-year matchup. Jordan Poole has actually been uh, weirdly efficient lately. And, I, you know, I don't know if it was just circumstance or what, but his field goal percent is up to 43.5. He's not going to be a big steals guy. I know he got two steals and a block in this ballgame. That's not what you're expecting to get from him. You're just hoping that the efficiency comes around because his volume was so high. But if you peel that down a little bit, and, I, you know, I don't think the assists are going to be particularly high either with the Warriors generally healthy. And I know there was no Clay Thompson in this one, so this helped also. You don't have to yell, yell at me about that. But just lately, he's been a better shooter for the Warriors and kind of hanging on all year. Because I don't know that you had many choices with him. Maybe finally starting to turn a corner, kind of like Terry Rozier. They weren't that different, honestly, this year. I think Rozier has been a bit more consistent just as a starting five member. Steph is back, 41. Uh, Dante DiVincenzo is someone I think you can probably move on from. Wiggins hasn't really hit his stride yet. But when this team's fully healthy, there just kind of isn't enough for anybody coming off the bench. For the Wizards, getting a lot of should I drop Daniel Gafford questions, and I still feel the answer is no. 22 minutes, 6 out of 8 shooting, made his free throws. Like, the only beef for me in this was that I was kind of hoping he'd get more than 5 boards, but like 6, 6.5 is probably the target for him. And then the block. You would want a block. And then you would obviously love more than one. But everything else kind of went according to plan for Gafford. He was a plus 17 in a game his team lost by nine, which, I mean, a little bit suspect. I'm hanging on to Gafford. I'm not adding Monte Morris. I know he had 17 and 10 because Bradley Beal is right around the corner, and we know that everybody loses all of their shots when Beal comes back. The name I would watch on this team, the guy who can put up fantasy stats consistently in those types of minutes, at least, would be DeLon Wright, who really hadn't gotten much in the way of run. By the way, he was a minus 19 in this game, so it's not like he got his bonus run because he was clobbering. But 9 points, 7 assists, 2 steals. He becomes a pretty viable specialist if all of a sudden he starts getting 25 to 29 minutes instead of, you know, 16 to 22. Because where he had been wasn't enough consistently for him to be anything more than I'm going to pick him up in my head-to-head -head league on a back-to-back, -back, and I hope I get four steals out of those two ball games. This number, 27 and change, almost 28 minutes, that's enough to be a full-time starter. I do need to see it again. I don't think we can make that the call to go on that one unless he does it another time because this was really it. And maybe it was Beal, maybe it was other guys just not playing well. Uh, Kispert only got 28 minutes, so his number kind of came down a little Hard to know exactly. There wasn't a whole lot of foul stuff going on, so you can't really blame it on that. Wizards just kind of mixed and matched differently. But if the mixing and matching differently ends and lands on DeLon more often, you roll with it because he's got a sweet fantasy game. Toronto beat the Knicks in overtime for the Raptors. This is the start of a five-game week, and I'm sure all of them were, were really hoping to play 45 minutes here. This is Tom Thibodeau and Nick Nurse in the minute-per-game battle is gross, truly. Scotty Barnes, 45. Siakam, 46. Van Fleet, 45. Trent, 42. Ananobi, 
Siakam and Ananobi actually each had some foul stuff going on, and they still put up these gigantic minute-per-game totals. Over on the Knicks side, R.J. Barrett, 49 minutes. That's wild. Anyway, no surprises in this game. Just a crap load of minutes. <laughs> like a just obscene number of minutes in this ballgame. The bad news that came out of yesterday, uh, Donovan Mitchell left early with a tweaked groin. It doesn't sound super serious, but groin stuff is always a little bit serious. He's already listed as doubtful for the Cavaliers' next ballgame, which I believe is tomorrow. Right? Yeah, he's tomorrow. Um, What we've seen in the past is that Karis LeVert does tend to do a little bit more when Mitchell's out, but LeVert, bad percentages... High turnovers guy, so when you're bad at those three things, you tend to look more towards points leagues. Uh, I had someone over on in the YouTube comments talk about how referring to them as points league only is a little bit short-sighted. And, and then, honestly, he's right, but it's sort of like speed nomenclature for fantasy analysts and podcasters. The long version of that is someone like a Karis LeVert is points league friendly, a points league option, because of the three categories where he tends to struggle, field goal, free throw, and turnovers, things that generally are not weighted particularly heavily on the points league side. But if you happen to be in a head-to-head league where, let's say, you're punting turnovers and one of the two percentages, then he only has one negative. And could there be some points and assists and steals and stuff like that? Yeah, that's a possibility. Still, now with Ricky Rubio healthy, they don't have to go to Levert as the other option. So I don't know that he's an ad regardless but I did feel like this was a perfectly reasonable time to sort of drop in that nugget that the feedback was, again, accurate, um, but we just we have to find a way to keep things speeding through a little bit on shows like this. So if I say something is a points league, is a guy who's mostly or better suited or well-suited or mostly suited for points leagues, that basically just means they're bad at percentages and turnovers, and if you're punting that stuff, just make that adjustment in your head. Like, I, I, that's that's the connector piece there. Over on the Pelis side, um, still big games for Jonas Valanciunas. Now, this one, again, matchup-wise made sense because the Cavs are big. They run a big front line between Jared Allen, who, not surprisingly, just crushed JV. Uh, Kevin Love in, in reserve there. Evan Mobley is a big power forward. So, uh... The Pels were able to kind of go large as well. They've needed JV's scoring. That's a big part of it with no Ingram and no Zion. There is now growing frustration. Some of the articles are starting to come out in Pels country. Where the hell is Brandon Ingram? And I wish I knew, people. I wish I knew. He's gone lost in the deepest tunnels of who knows where. And this is a this is all from a toe injury. There's just, like, no updates. Every once in a while we get this trickle of, oh, yeah, he's doing some stuff. And we're like, oh, does that mean he's... No. Not much you can do besides just squat on it and hope. Jose Alvarado's seen his minutes tick up here lately with a lot of guys out. He's uh, intermittently fantasy useful. This was a better ball game. You're mostly hunting steals if you're playing Jose, and then you hope you get, like, a three-pointer and four or five assists, which you did in this one. But the three steals was the big heavy weight in this ballgame. That was the good stuff. Would I use him in a Roto League? No. 
Would I use him when the schedule allows for Pels head-to-head, like if they have the three games and four nights type of thing? Yeah, that's more. So when I say schedule streamer, that's basically what that means. Trey Murphy, on the other hand, he's someone I would use in all formats. He's got his confidence back. He's back up to 14 shots in this game, second most on the team. I know he didn't have a great plus-minus in the ball game, but overall he looks like he's kind of feeling his oats a little bit. And then Najee Marshall's another guy we've talked about as a bit better suited for points leagues because typically turnovers are weirdly high for someone who's not really orchestrating. Field goal and free throw percent. Free throw's actually kind of been okay for him. Field goal was better in this one, but generally a little bit lower. Rebounds and assists have been fine. Non-spectacular, but fine. Uh, He's not someone I've used in Roto either. He's someone that I think is slightly better than a schedule streamer, but not particularly Roto-friendly. Atlanta beat Miami 121-113. Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo had good ball games. Victor Oladipo had 10 assists, and he's been a start lately. But the big news here was Tyler Hero came back, took 16 shots, which is fine. I mean, he's, he's good. But his return meant that Gabe Vincent only got 10. And that was the big story for Miami over the weekend. Gabe Vincent got a crap ton of offensive opportunity when Hero and Lowry were each out for the Heat. But now that one of them is back, more specifically the one who takes a lot of shots in a ballgame, Vincent becomes, he's still good, but he's a little bit more of a placeholder. And he'll put up these kind of like Kyle Lowry light type of lines. Some threes, some steals, not as many assists. Lowry's going to do better there. He's probably going to score a little bit better once he's back. Does Vincent still make sense as someone you can hang on to in head-to-head? Yeah, I think he probably does slide down more towards that schedule stream bucket, but probably not so much anymore in the roto bucket, which is where he was when both backcourt guys were out. Clint Capella made his return for Atlanta. He came off the bench and played 21 minutes. He'll ramp up towards starters-level production, and then he and Okongwu will probably flip at some point because the Hawks are generally just better with Capella's rebounding and defense on the court. So if you have Okongwu, this is kind of your little bit of a last hurrah. Bogdan Bogdanovich, getting a lot of questions about him. He is ice freaking cold, and he does run really hot and cold. So no, I would not drop him. Absolutely not. When he's hot, he can run top 70. When he's cold, he's going to fall outside the top 100. But overall, he probably does profile more as that kind of 90-range guy because he's a pretty high-usage bench player who does get some assists, who does tumble into a steal every once in a while, and definitely knocks down three balls. But he's cold right now. And honestly, I would consider a buy situation on Bogdanovich, because we know he's not going to shoot under 20% most ball games. We also know that he's going to get a fair number of shots most ball games. This game happened to be played at a very slow pace and just had a lot of points because Atlanta shot almost 60%. The pace in this game was crazy low. So usually there are even more more possessions for the Hawks. Uh, 121 points is fine, but the shots might be higher. I, I, I still think Bogdan is going to be fine, and maybe I'll, I'll try, if time allows today, it's going to be kind of a busy day to get out on Twitter. That's again, of course, is at Dan Bespris on Twitter. I've said it a thousand times. I'll say it a thousand and one, damn it. Uh, and figure out what the actual perceived value is for uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich. Because I feel like the perceived value is lower than the real value right now. And that's good. 
that means that you can probably get him a little bit on the cheap. All right, what do we got next? Utah, Minnesota. That was a fun one. Walker Kessler, 2020 game. Now, grain of salt on a lot of stuff here with Utah because when Larry Markinen is out and his very high usage rate, he and Jordan Clarkson are the guys that typically chew up all the shots in a ball game. That means more minutes for Kessler and Jared Vanderbilt and Malik Beasley, more shots for all three of those guys, more shots for Conley, more shots for Colin Sexton. It's hard to get Jordan Clarkson any more shots than he was already taking, so not quite as heavily impacted. But what you're seeing here with Utah is you know, when one big usage guy goes down, now Kelly Olynyk is already down. He's not a big usage guy, but his minutes were already available. That's a lot. I mean, you're talking about 60-plus minutes between those two guys, and you know, even with Olynyk on the lower usage frame, a lot between the two of them getting redistributed here. What does it mean for what happens when Markinen comes back? Because the expectation is that he's not going to be out all that long. I wouldn't make any large tweaks to your Utah projections based on Markinen missing a couple ball games. When Larry's back, uh, Vanderbilt was a guy who was really hanging on by a thread. He's moved back above that here with Larry and Olenek out. I don't know that he survives fantasy rosters when either of those two guys comes back, but he's bought himself a little bit more time for now. Conley, kind of the same story. I've, I've used this, this analogy on the show of him just kind of holding the steering wheel on a ship or van or whatever they're, the Jazz are driving around in these days. Conley's just kind of steering the boat. But when all these guys go down, they're like, Mike, we need you to do some stuff, man. And he was... A team, a team best plus nine. He's critical to what they do. And now we're seeing rumors popping up. Oh, everybody wants to trade for Mike Conley. If Utah trades Conley, they are no longer competing because he's the guy that keeps them like at least near a 500 ball club when he's healthy. They need that veteran presence to steer the boat. I like Mike Moore when he has to do more than hold the the steering wheel steady when he actually might have to turn it every once in a while. So he's another one that's a little bit of a question mark when Markinen comes back. Uh, Kessler is above the threshold easily, and he's just blowing past it now with everybody out. So he falls back when people return, yes, but he's still going to be a start. Sexton's another one where, you know, right now I might trust him in head-to-head. Beasley, I probably would trust him in head-to-head, but not Roto, even with all of these guys out and then definitely not when guys start coming back. Triple-double for Slow-Mo. You guys know how much I love Kyle Anderson. He's a roto darling. 13, 11, and 10, a steal, a block, a three-pointer, 6 out of 12 shooting, zero turnovers. The only thing he didn't do was hit a free throw, but he didn't miss any either. Oh, man. My whole body just quivers with delight when I see Kyle Anderson and the slow-mo fantasy lines. We still don't really know what the hell's going on with Cat. Um, my assumption is that he'll be back in the next, like, two to three weeks, but we don't really know. And also of note in this ball game, Rudy Gobert, who, by the way, uh, I have a little bit of beef with Rudy on this particular ball game because over the uh, when Rudy left the previous game with a tweaked groin, I picked up Nas Reed everywhere and i mean every 
freaking where. Head-to-head, Roto, you name it. Because I was like, ain't no way this team's going to play Rudy Gobert with a sore groin after we've seen all these guys try to play through groin and hamstring and calf stuff and then end up missing a ridiculous amount of time. And then, bup, there he was. Rudy Gobert, available to play. And so I went through, and I was I pulled over to the side of the road. I was driving my kid because uh, it was yesterday morning, MLK Day morning, and like apparently the only thing open on MLK Day is a little rock climbing gym, and my kid's never done it. So we went there, and I'm driving home. I'm like, okay, is Rudy in? Is Rudy in? Is Rudy in? Because I had Nas in every Roto lineup, and bloop, there it is. I'm at a stoplight. I'm like, all right, sorry, dude, we got to pull over for one sec. Daddy's got to screw with his fantasy team on the side of the road. And I did, and I yanked him out of every lineup. And honestly, it turned out fine because Nas was kind of hobbling a little bit himself. I think there was concern that maybe his back was sore. Uh, and per- and he ended up picking five fouls up in this game also, so that kind of capped his minutes. But he still had 7.7 boards and two blocks and a three-pointer in only 22 minutes. All's well that ends well, I suppose, since we didn't blow a game's cap on a like a top 100 type of Nas Reed line, but I am sort of, I don't want to say grateful, because that's the wrong word. I don't want Rudy Gobert to be hurt, but I do feel contented in that I didn't drop Nas Reed when I saw that Gobert was playing yesterday, because so quickly in the ballgame, Rudy then re-left, did it again, can't make it through the game again, guys. And now you've got to think they're going to give him a few days off. It'd be so dumb if they let him try again in their next ballgame. That would just be the stupidest thing ever. But, you know, I mean, NBA teams these days. Uh, Nasri should have at least one game, probably more, of delightful power. And it honestly, it helps Kyle Anderson, too, because Rudy Gobert sucks up all the interior stuff. And slow-mo is your power forward, so he's going to kind of get what the center doesn't get. Reed's a very good rebounder as well, uh, but he's not Rudy Gobert, so this does help him, too. So hang on to those Nas reads, everyone. I think this could be kind of a fun little mini run for him. Memphis blew out the Zombie Suns. Mikael Bridges had a pretty good start to this ballgame. He ended up riding that to a decent line overall. But on the whole, this was rough. Memphis is very good. And Phoenix, even at like closer to full strength, is struggling these days. But now with two starters and then just nobody... This was this was tough. Uh, they need people back. Chris Paul apparently is like relatively close. They're saying uh, Cam Johnson is now getting close. By the way, if you were considering a Cam Johnson stash, this would probably be the time to do it. In the meantime, uh, Landry Shamit is running point for the Suns, and I think against a less tenacious team, he's probably a start provided no one comes back that was missing for this ball game because like he had six assists four rebounds he had a three-pointer he got nine shots up uh he was being hounded by dylan brooks most of the time he was out there and so that you know brooks is for all of his foibles on the offensive side he is a very good point of attack defender one-on-one guy uh and so there was just no way that shame was going to put up a good game against dylan brooks not with these guys around him uh but let's wait and see who's in and who's out for the suns we have to kind of make a decision every game based on what's happening for that team on any given night and then everybody had to wait two and a half hours luckily for you i won't make you wait two and a half hours on this show 
to talk about the Lakers and the Rockets. And the big stories here, the big lines, actually, in this ballgame were the big stories. Alper and Shengun, 33-15-6 and four blocks. And just eight Thomas Bryant alive in this ballgame. Lakers couldn't even keep Bryant on the floor. He was getting roasted so hard on defense. Uh, and teams are now attacking a bit more against L.A. We saw the Lakers adjust their defense a little bit. And this is maybe getting too far into the weeds on the Lakers. But if you're wondering how this whole center situation is going to go, let's start at the top. First of all, latest report on Anthony Davis, Shams was, uh, Shams Saranya was on uh, some, it was like a Bally's something show yesterday. And he talked about how AD is targeting an early February return. He mentioned that AD wants to be back before the All-Star break. Now, that's a relatively sizable window because the All-Star game is, I think, February 19th. Is that a Sunday? Yeah, so the All-Star break starts on, like, February 15th or 16th. So it's basically like a two-week window. I want to be back in early February, but before the All-Star break. Gives him two weeks in February to get into a ball game. I don't know what the actual AD timeline is going to be. It sounds like probably not before January's over, so you're looking at at least two more weeks. Earlier this year, the Lakers' defensive scheme involved funneling players towards Anthony Davis, which is not a terrible idea. He's not as quick as he used to be, but he's still an absolute behemoth protecting the rim against everybody other than the fastest dudes in the NBA. So... The Lakers would chase ball handlers around screens. They generally went uh, over screens, try to prevent the open three-point look, and funnel people towards Davis to create that kind of tougher mid-range or floater type of look. It's basically the Lakers are saying, we're going to go analytics on defense. We want folks either... Uh, we don't want folks getting all the way to the rim, and we have AD to prevent that. And we don't want folks taking three-pointers, so we're going to chase him off of the three-line. That doesn't work with Thomas Bryant back there. And the first few games, well, the Lakers won that first game when AD got hurt. And then after that, they just started getting completely annihilated on defense because the scheme was still to funnel ball handlers towards the big man. But Bryant has almost no defensive skills whatsoever. Everything he's done for the Lakers while AD's been out has been, at least on the positive side, has been great offense for Bryant and the Lakers quickly realized they needed to adjust that so they changed a bit how they've been playing defense Bryant's been able to drop a little bit more and teams are still coming right after him now what does that mean well the Lakers have the Kings next which means Demonis Sabonis in the middle and it probably means Bryant's gonna have to play because Wenyan Gabriel as great as he looked yesterday 14-9 with a steal and two blocks. I just, I can't imagine that he can handle the size of Sabonis. Bryant's not going to be able to stick with him, you know, from an offensive move standpoint. But you just need girth. You need to be able to push a little bit. And Bryant is bigger in that regard. So, I, again, I don't know what the Lakers are going to do in that next ballgame exactly. The thing that I do think is happening is that it's becoming a bit more of a timeshare. Because Gabriel seems to be getting a little bit better every ballgame. Bryant teams are exploiting a little more every ball game, and if I'm a fantasy player, which I suppose I am, I'm probably benching Bryant and Gabriel until we see either of them kind of move in front, or possibly just bench him until AD comes back. 
it really might be that neither of them holds consistent value from now until whenever it is that Anthony gets back on the court. I did warn you guys all about Dennis Schroeder. He was running really hot with his shot, uh, and now he's not anymore. And he's quite bad when he's not knocking down jumpers. As far as Houston goes, a couple very small nuggets on the Rockets that I don't think changed thing all that much. Kevin Porter Jr. expected to be back for their next ball game, so if you were hoping to squeeze a little more out of K.J. Martin, probably no. Eric Gordon is trying to play his way right out of town right now. This is like full audition mode for him. He is attacking. He is engaged. He didn't even shoot three-pointers in that game yesterday. He was just going at Thomas Bryant. He was basically like a de facto point guard for the Rockets. He actually looked pretty freaking good. He looked old when they showed a close-up of his face, but he looked good on the floor, and that surprised the hell out of me because I think I'd seen him move that well in a really long time. He's also playing in back-to-backs. So he falls into one of those categories we talk about where, like, he doesn't do that many things. He scores, typically hits threes, like one steal a game. Percentages are not that great. Profiles generally a bit more as a points league type of guy. Uh, But again, if you're uh, targeting a few categories on the head-to-head side, now that he's playing in back-to-backs, he does make more sense than he did before. And then with Jabari Smith and Jalen Green, what can you do? You kind of just have to throw your hands in the air and say, please just like let him have an efficient ball game on any given night. And typically they haven't. Generally, young guys get better as the season goes on. The Jalen Green thing is a little bit frustrating, though, because he did seem to turn an efficiency corner late last year and has instead now taken a big step backwards with Jabari Smith. He's just young and lean and getting bonked around by NBA players. I actually do think he continues to slowly get better this year, but you can't really sell low on either of them because then you're just cashing in at the wrong time. You know, it's tough. Like you want to try to get something for these types of dudes, but you almost kind of can't. Because if you did now, you'd get, like, Bogdan Bogdanovich, who we were just talking about earlier in the year. He's a buy low, but you don't want to get him for a sell low. Ah, well. Buy low, sell low, no. Uh, again, we'll we'll do some more work on the Bogdan Bogdanovich stuff over on Twitter. I am also curious what the perceived value is of these two young Rockets, sophomore and rookie, respectively. What do people think... Jabari Smith is the rest of the year. What do people think of Jalen Green? Because right now, uh, just looking at the actual rankings, Jabari Smith is 146, which I believe is ahead of Green. Yeah, Jalen's number 202 because he's fully sinking you in like five categories this year. Woof. Uh, <laughs> um, actually, I didn't even realize. Under one steal per game, 0.2 blocks, 40.5% super high volume from the field and sub-80 at the free throw line. That's just three turnovers a game and only three and a half assists? Yeesh. You know me. You know I don't typically draft the younger guys, uh, so there's a little bit of element of surprise to looking at this, but anyway, that's the way that is. Um, hey, thank you for uh, for listening, everybody. Recorded podcast listeners, remember, you can always pop over to our live YouTube recordings, which I'm attempting to do Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday every week, if possible. And also, I think, I want to tease it here, that Aaron Brewski, the great brew, will be on two YouTube shows a week, 
possibly starting as early as next week. And I think we might get him on one this week as well. One of them will be together, so that'll be a lot of fun. Me and Brew like the good old days here. And then another might be a Brew Solo Brewski Breakdown podcast. Wouldn't you guys love that? Crap, I'd love that. Uh, so that's another reason to go subscribe to our YouTube page. Again, speaking directly here to the recorded listeners who haven't gone and checked it out, that's uh, over at youtube.com slash sportsethos. We also do a live Q&A at the end of all of our YouTube shows. So again, yet another reason to go check out youtube.com slash sportsethos. Uh, head on over to our Twitter account here, at Dan Bespris, and we will continue the fantasy discussion over there today. Just a short Tuesday card before we wrap things up. Um, you guys know I like to do this quick little lightning round preview. So here's the Tuesday card. Again, those that are, uh, I mean, this is not a whole lot. Toronto, does anybody rest on the back-to-back? Because we were talking on yesterday's show about guys like Precious Achua, Pascal, uh, not Pascal Siakam, Chris Boucher getting a bump on top of the five-game week because of the expectation that some folks just won't be able to play in all five. And off an overtime game, you've got to think that this would be one they might skip. But Milwaukee's only favored by two and a half, which tells me that Giannis is probably still out in this game. We know Middleton's still out, but he's getting close. Uh, the other side of the back-to-back for the Bucks. I mean, you know, if you wanted to try Joe Ingles, it probably wouldn't be the worst idea in the world, but I probably won't. Brooklyn, just still getting a feel for any of those three fill-in guys. Harris, Curry, Warren. I think they continue to rotate, and I think Royce O'Neal's the guy who stays kind of above the board there. For the Spurs, a lot of Jakob Pertle trade rumors floating in right now. Yeah, I don't know what you do with him. You're not going to be able to move him for fair value right now um, because everybody knows he's on the block, but he's been really good lately. So I don't know. Maybe you can squeeze something out, or maybe you just have to hope he gets moved to a spot where a team's going to use him for 30 minutes of ball game. That's a hope. I don't think a team... Uh, who would trade? Who would give up the assets for Jakob Pertl to use him as a backup? I got to think through whatever teams need a center right now. Portland and Denver, not a whole lot to look at in this ballgame. I think these teams are generally healthy right now, so, you know, whatever. Philly at Clippers. De'Anthony Melton is questionable with an illness. Uh, although I think they're saying he is actually still expect, so he's a little closer to probable than questionable. I just want to know what his role is going to be, and you got to hold on until we figure it out. And then for the Clippers, this might be the good news of the day. I'm crossing my fingers. I'm crossing my toes. I'm crossing my eyes. I'm crossing my teeth. I'm rolling my tongue. Uh, Paul George practiced in full yesterday. He is questionable to make his return again from another hamstring thing. And then how long will we have him healthy before he's back out again? But whatever, it would be really useful if he plays. And then you'll also see a pretty stark drop-off. For guys like Terrence Mann, Norman Powell, uh, Marcus Morris, if you wanted to go that far down the down the line, um, you know when the Clippers are fully healthy, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, sometimes are the only two guys you can play on the team. Zubats is kind of the next guy, but we know he's also quite a lot better when one of the stars goes down. So uh, a lot of health, a lot of health report stuff. I mean that's it's kind of always what we're watching in the NBA right now, and that now officially is the end of our. Tuesday podcast. This once again was Fantasy NBA Day, a sports ethos presentation. I'll see all y'all crazies over on Twitter. So long for now.